Food is big, big business. Growing, harvesting, packing, shipping, and selling food is a gigantic multi-billion dollar enterprise. Anything that makes it easier or more profitable to produce food is good. Anything that gets in the way, like government regulation, is bad. The battle to keep food safe has been going on for more than 100 years, and it continues today. Companies trying to squeeze every dollar of profit take every shortcut they can find and contribute millions to politicians who help them fight regulators. It's a constant game of whack-a-mole. This is how we regulate food in America. This is why our food system is not as safe as it should be. And this is Green Street. Hello again, and welcome to Green Street. Patty and Doug Wood at our network of experts, scientists, researchers, medical professionals, engineers, authors, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a little bit more of what in the world is going on that impacts your life, your health, and the health of your family. Today on Green Street, we're delighted to have with us a senior scientist for Consumer Reports, Michael Hansen, who will talk about his work on the issue of food with some great stories of how he and others have been working to protect our food supply and make it safe while the industry does what it can to maximize profits and cut costs. It's a constant battle, and I'm sure you'll enjoy what Michael has to say, but before we get to that, here's Patty with the headlines from the Green Street News Department. What do you got for us today? Okay, first one is a short one written by Theo Whitcomb, uh, published in the High Country News, and it is entitled, Yes, the Drought Really Is That Bad. Across the West, state leaders are bracing against the long-term impacts of aridification. In late April, Oregon Governor Kate Brown added four additional counties to the drought emergency. Now half the state is in a state of emergency. Further south, Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which gets water to millions of city dwellers, restricted outdoor water use for the first time ever. In Colorado, the U.S. Department of Agriculture designated the entire state a, quote, primary natural disaster area due to the threat of drought, also considered an unprecedented move. The Southwest as a whole has been hit hard with dry conditions. Utah and New Mexico both issued separate emergency declarations, one for water scarcity and the other for wildfires. The political designations unlock resources and expand powers for states and counties to navigate the extreme water scarcity, making available, among other things, relief aid for the agriculture industry. Westerners will undoubtedly need it this summer and, as the drought likely continues, future summers. Shrinking snowpacks, parched topsoil, and depleted reservoirs are symptoms of the West's worst set of dry years since 800 A.D. There is also a significant likelihood the mega drought continues. A study published in Nature Climate Change in February predicted a 94% chance that the drought stretches through 2023. The chances of it persisting through 2030 are 75% when factoring in continued impacts of a warming climate. This is the new normal. This is exactly right. 
Yeah. Completely unpredictable and just severe, severe weather conditions. And I'm not just talking storms, and that's not what, that's not what they're talking about in this article. No, it's this just This article is just drought, 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 yeah. drought, drought. Yeah. Don't miss water till the well runs dry, they say. Okay. Yeah. What's next? Okay, so uh, next article written by Caitlin Andrews, published in the Bangor Daily News. The title is Maine is preparing a lawsuit against PFAS manufacturers. Maine is getting closer to filing a lawsuit aimed at manufacturers of so-called forever chemicals, something that is likely to be a massive and years-long undertaking for the state. Attorney General Aaron Frey said at a Maine Democratic Party convention that his office is working with Governor Janet Mills to prepare legal action to, quote, hold these chemical manufacturers to account, end quote, and steps could be announced within weeks. The state is still working on securing outside lawyers to handle the case, but Frey's signal was a major step with the attorney general saying that he believed the last time his office used outside counsel was in negotiations on the landmark multi-state tobacco settlement of 1998, which sends $46 million to Maine each year. It has been months in the making. Such a lawsuit is allowed under a measure passed last year by the legislature to hire outside lawyers and pay them using settlement funds. In September, the state asked law firms to submit proposals for the work. The lawsuit may target makers of per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, known as PFAS, and similar chemicals long used in various industries. Concern around the products, which take decades to break down and are linked to conditions including cancer, has increased in Maine in recent years after being found in farm products, wildlife, fish, and drinking water. While millions could come to aid those affected by the chemicals as a result of such a lawsuit, results could take a long time. The Department of Environmental Protection is sampling hundreds of sites where the most PFAS and similar chemicals could be found. The legislature has also banned the practice of spreading sludge as fertilizers and the use of chemicals in pesticides by 2030. By next year, it will be illegal to sell carpets, rugs, and fabric treatments with PFAS in them. Any product with a chemical intentionally added must be reported to the state by next year as well. This is really cool that they're doing this. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about PFAS. Yeah, if this our is, listeners, if, if our listeners recall. Yeah, basically every yeah. week for the past couple of years we've been talking about PFAS right. and it's and the contamination. Right. This is the so this is the tip of the iceberg. They're just going to start. Tip of the iceberg. And, and the, Maine is 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 you Maine, know Maine's is an interesting state. Up, you know, out front on these. Yeah. Maine is historically out front on some of these environmental issues, especially mm. when it comes to chemical contamination, but. It's so ubiquitous, this this yeah. class of chemicals. When you say PFAS, it's it's about 9,000 chemicals that are in that class. Yeah. Uh, so this is a big deal. Good for them. Yeah, good for them. Okay, what else? All right, well, now we have an article written by Louis Gore Langton. Uh, it was published in a, uh, in a journal called Packaging Insights. And it is entitled, New York Braces for Lobbying Frenzy as Ambitious EPR Bill Promises Industry Transformation. New York's new Extended Producer Responsibility, or EPR Bill, is expected to face fierce industry resistance, experts say. The bill introduced on May 5th would make packaging producers completely responsible for packaging waste management while forcing them to reduce their packaging by half within the next decade. 
Touted as a global leader in packaging pollution legislation, the bill would also impose blanket bans on chemicals like PFAS and require companies to transition 90% of the remaining packaging over 12 years to be either recyclable, compostable, or made of recycled content. Proponents of the bill say it has a good chance of being passed, but powerful industry lobbying will likely create a tough battle given the gravity of its proposals. Ryan Carson, a campaign coordinator for the New York Public Interest Research Group, or NYPERG, says, quote, I absolutely expect industry resistance. Whenever there is real pressure to hold industry accountable, they will always spend money and influence trying to scare legislators away from the real, ambitious packaging standards. The bill would force major companies to pay for all packaging waste management in New York State. However, industry is not going to regulate itself as much as corporations may try to persuade electeds otherwise. We wouldn't let Exxon set standards on combating climate change, and we shouldn't let the packaging industry dictate how we combat the waste crisis, end quote. Judith Ank, president of Beyond Plastics, tells us she is, quote, waiting on strong opposition, which is not uncommon. Think of it like fuel efficiency standards for automobiles or energy savings appliance efficiency standards for dishwashers. This bill introduces the idea of specific environmental standards for packaging. This is an important bill commensurate with the problem at hand. This approach does not perpetuate the status quo with money being provided to local governments for recycling. This bill requires actual packaging reduction along with toxic reduction, end quote. Carson also says that the bill's proposals are justified by the major global waste crisis. Quote, we are running out of time. This bill meets the scale of this crisis head on. Microplastics are in the food we eat and the water we drink. Our oceans are steadily becoming landfills. Despite this, plastic production is expected to increase over the coming decades. We have already seen what it looks like when corporations are allowed to dictate their own standards. Now it is time to catch up to the crisis we find ourselves in. They have benefited financially from this crisis, and they should be fiscally responsible for the solution, end quote. Yeah, well, it doesn't take a genius to know that the, uh, the industry is going to respond pretty forcefully to this. I mean, the industry is going to use everything they can to fight back, because if this passes in New York, it's going to pass in other states. And, you know, we've got to have a, a, a real battle on our hands. There are a few EPR bills around the country. I would say maybe three, and none but of them are as strong as this. No, they don't go this, this far. Is, this is a real gold standard bill. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. So okay. because this month is Mental Health Month, I have one more article that I would like to share with our listeners. This is from the Wall Street Journal. It's written by Katie Dayton, and the title is California Bill Aims to Make Tech Firms Liable for Social Media Addiction in Children. A pair of California lawmakers introduced a bill that aims to hold technology companies liable for social media addictions that may affect children. The bill would let parents and guardians sue platforms that they believe addicted children in their care through advertising, push notifications, and design features that promote compulsive use particularly the continual consumption of harmful content on issues such as eating disorders and suicide. It would hold companies accountable regardless of whether they deliberately designed their products to be addictive. The bill, called the Social Media Platform Duty to Children Act, was introduced by State Assembly members Jordan Cunningham, a Republican, and Buffy Wicks, a Democrat. The new bill is meant to push companies to, quote, bear some of the social costs that they put on all of our children, end quote. Parents and guardians may choose to sue for the cost of psychiatrists, for example, Mr. Cunningham said. 
The number of bills on the topic has increased over the past several years, as has the confidence that some might eventually pass, said Josh Golan, executive director of the nonprofit Fair Play, which argues that social media can exploit children for commercial gain. The California bill was partly inspired by the Wall Street Journal's 2021 reporting that Meta Platforms Incorporated, the company formerly known as Facebook Incorporated, found that one in eight of its users reported engaging in compulsive use of social media that affected their sleep, their work, parenting, or relationships, according to internal documents. Company documents obtained through Francis Hogan, a former Facebook employee and whistleblower, also showed the company was aware that its Instagram, pat, plat, that its Instagram platform can negatively affect the self-image of teenage girls in particular. A spokeswoman for Meta said the company disagreed with the characterizations of its research, noting that another survey showed 8 out of 10 U.S. teens who used Instagram said the platform either made them feel better about themselves or had no effect. The company also rolled out new features that aim to encourage thoughtful and age-appropriate Instagram usage, including notifications that remind heavy scrollers to, quote-unquote, take a break. It's a very serious problem. No, no, no doubt about it. I have personally seen it yeah. in action. Not, thank goodness, with our children and grandchildren, but I have seen this in action with, with kids who just literally lose it. I mean, yeah. lose it you know, when a, a device is taken away from them. And being a kid is hard enough without the additional pressure being put on them by these things. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Well, there's only one place in the universe where life can bloom and grow. But we're doing our best to screw it up like we got somewhere else to go. Let me tell you the facts you may not like It's only a matter of time Till the ice all melts and water comes up What we're doing is really a crime What are we doing? What are we doing? Messing things up in our own backyard We can do better, we got to do better It just can't be that hard What are we doing? What are we doing? Making a mess and mess of this place Come on people, working together we Save this place from the human race. Everybody around the world has to eat. Ever since the 1600s, when improvements in agriculture allowed some people to move to the city and others to concentrate on growing food for them, the food business has been a source of both innovation and scandal. Keeping our food supply safe has been a constant challenge and the lifelong quest of our guest today on Green Street. Dr. Michael Hansen has been a senior staff scientist for Consumer Reports for more than 20 years. He develops policy positions, testifies before government agencies, speaks widely at conferences in the U.S. and abroad, and talks frequently to the media on critical food safety and environmental health concerns, including mad cow disease, genetic engineering, pesticide use, and antibiotics in animal feed. Patty and I caught up with Mike Hansen last week. Here's our interview with Dr. Michael Hansen. Tell us a little bit about 
how you got involved with Consumer Reports and how busy actually is the food division of that? Well, I've actually been at Consumer Reports for quite a while, over 30 years. Uh-huh. I originally came to Consumer Reports in the mid to late 80s, and I originally came just to write a book called Escape from the Pesticide Treadmill. And what it is, is it's case studies from a number of developing countries, food production, where they could raise food adequately without using pesticides. And the reason for this is you, you should know Consumer Reports is one of the founding members. There's a global network of consumer organizations that's now called Consumers International. And these are consumer groups that are, that are literally all over the world. So for example, when Bhopal happened, there were folks from uh, activists who work with Consumers International who were in Bhopal less than 24 hours after it happened. Yikes. Yep. 48 to 96 hours later, literally within three days, there were demonstrations in front of the head of Union Carbide's house up yep. here in the Northeast. So I came because the global pesticide network, there's a thing called the Pesticide Action Network. Right. There was, a, you know, one of the things that was a problem is all these pesticides were being banned in the U.S., but then they would still allow them to be produced, to be shipped to other countries. Oh, yeah. Right. And so the idea was those other countries, what was happening is those other countries, what they were saying is, oh, we can't do peasant agriculture. Modern agriculture means you have to use lots of pesticides. So what the movement needed is they said a book that could demonstrate that you could produce a lot of food without the use of these pesticides. So that's what I did. And each of the chapters in the book I wrote was a, about a different case. One, for example, was about integrated pest management programs in rice and how you could decrease the use of pesticides in rice. And actually, it turns out that that book that I wrote was actually cited by people in Indonesia uh, when they were able, two years later in like 1987, uh, Indonesia declared... Uh, I think 25 or 30 different pesticides were banned in rice and they declared a national mm. camp program. And it was in part, they sort of cited uh, stuff from this book. So I came to Consumer Reports to actually write that book. And then I got hired and I was working for Consumer Reports on issues, but was also doing a lot of work with consumer groups all over the world. And it was not only on pesticides, but was also on things like genetic engineering. And so for all the 30 years that I've worked at Consumer Reports, besides helping consumer groups all over the world, and particularly in Asia and Latin America, we focused on, as I said, pesticides and also chemicals that are being added to foods. So that's not only genetic engineering, but I also got pulled in and I was one of the main critics of uh, on mad cow disease, right? Because we mm -hmm. were grinding up animals and mm -hmm. feeding them back to them. And so I continue to work at Consumer Reports on a range of toxicity issues in food. That's genetic engineering. That's pesticides. That's actually now, we did some of the first testing in the early 90s for phthalates and other compounds leaching out of plastics, going into food like cheese. So we were actually also testing baby bottles for BPA 15 or 20 years ago. So it was working on those whole range of issues from a consumer perspective. And it was working at not only the U.S. level, but sometimes we could get more action 
working internationally. Mm-hmm. You know, it probably drove you crazy, Michael, though, when you were trying to get BPA out of plastic bottles, especially baby bottles. I'm thinking about the formula thing right now, um, because you know the manufacturers are just substituting. You know, they call them regrettable substitutes for BPA and using BPS and BPF and so on and so on. And and that's true. And that's and what you have to do, though, is you have to fight the fight you have. So, for example, you could say the same thing like with a pesticide. The first fights were, for example, against the organochlorines, DDT right. and those things because right. of the shell thickening. So they came up with the organophosphates. Those are going to be less persistent in the environment that well, they turned out to be more more acutely toxic to people. Correct. Right. Yep. So that really harmed farm workers. And then it's like, okay, now we'll move to the synthetic pyrethroids, which are not very toxic to mammals. And we can use much smaller doses. And these are considered to be much safer. Only we now find out two things. One, that many of these synthetic pyrethroids are endocrine disruptors. Correct. Right? Yep. Yep. And, but number two, it turns out that, the, that many of those synthetic pyrethroids are particularly toxic to beneficial insects, to predators right. and to pollinators. Yeah. Yep. Well, yep. pollinators, but also to the predators and the insect wasps and beetles and other things that eat other insects that prey on herbivorous insects. Right. So what you have to do is you keep on fighting each stage. For BPA, there was the data was bad enough. Yes, you need to get it out. And yes, there are folks that are now saying, and what we did try to say then is you should treat things as a class. Exactly. So so that means substituting BPF for BPA. And the reason they were doing that was because there wasn't data showing these adverse effects of BPF and BPS and other things. And that was in in part because they didn't have any data. Right. right? Science hadn't been done. Right. When it should have been done beforehand. So what you do is and what we've always been pushing the government to do is If you look at the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, it does say that when you regulate chemicals, if they have a common mode of action or the same chemical structure, you're supposed to treat them as a class. And we've managed to get the FDA to to do some of this. So for example, the long chain PFOSs, PFOA, PFOS, right? They remove those uh, back in 2015, those were pulled from the market for use in food packaging, right? And part of the reason that that was done was because a bunch of NGOs actually petitioned the FDA to stop those food uses. Mm-hmm. And that was successful. We're telling them, treat them as a class. And they did. And we're also telling them, for example, there is later this week, the FDA is supposed to revealed there was a citizen's petition against the FDA to tell them to remove orthophthalates for use as food additives because there's you know recent studies have shown epidemiological studies have shown incredibly small levels of orthophthalates cause adverse effects in infants and children and that dosages that are actually being achieved right now you can demonstrate can cause these adverse effects Right. So mm. even though they're considered grass right now, that there was a petition in that says FDA needs to ban those. Supposedly later this week, they're going to respond to the petition and hopefully they'll 
uh, remove that. So there's been action taken on that, and we now have a petition in uh, to the FDA. Again, a whole range of uh, groups that are trying to get the government to uh, ban PFAS in food packaging and to take more action on that level. Mm. So yes, we are we are well aware of the issue of the need to treat things as a class. And there have been groups that, that have been pressuring the FDA to take these actions. And I will finally say for BPA, what's interesting there is there is a petition in to the FDA to actually, that's asking them to ban BPA. Because if you don't know what's happening there, the European Food Safety Authority, EFSA, has actually proposed uh, a new, quote, safe level for BPA. And it turns out to be 250,000 times lower than what they had previously done. And the permitted level in the U.S., right, it's over 1 million times. Wow. Right. So. Wow. Yeah. And so and so they're telling them that you need to take action against BPA and others in the class. This is a class. So and and it's a huge it's a huge class. I mean, the bisphenols is a huge class. The phthalates is a huge class. A PFAS or PFAS is a huge class of chemicals. It's That's like, correct. And, and so, yeah. And so they have to take action. But a lot of these chemicals, particularly the PFAS ones, you start to get into these various tricky areas of the definitions and all that because there are some, for example, there are some important drugs that would be labeled as PFAS, right? And there's actually a propellant that has been put forward that's not a hydrocarbon, one of the right. a bad ozone gases. Well, actually, right. there's now a chemical that's a PFAS that actually can replace one of those. So the companies are now trying to argue, oh, well, wait a minute. Some of these PFASs are having useful uses for climate action. But these are forever chemicals. They last forever. I, I just have a big question about PFAS and plastics, because from what I have read, it seems like almost every type of plastic, and if you want to just go through all the recycling codes, right, the DEHP and the, you know, PETE and all those different types of plastic, that they all have PFAS in them because the PFAS additive helps all of these plastics go through the machinery, through the molds and through the extruders and so on, so that they don't get- Well, they may, they don't know. They have to actually, part of the problem is with some of these is you have to realize, I think they're now saying there's over 9,000 PFAS chemicals. Mm -hmm. But if you look, there's only, uh, and EPA does have data, there's only 660 that are in commerce in the US now. Part of the problem with that is that we only have methods to detect 40 of them, to be able to actually measure them. The vast majority of them, they can't even detect, right? So that makes it hard to do some kind of risk assessments, right? It's impossible. Right. And so that's why they're trying to EPA, to their credit, they're trying to take all these actions. They're trying to, the government is actually trying to do something on PFAS. It's just such a monumental thing that it's going to you know, take a while, but they have opened up. There is EPA does have this roadmap. They are trying to uh, step forward, but it's going to take time. And yes, plastics are a new thing that was found this using fluorine gas to coat the inside of plastic containers. Yeah. So that they don't. And what that does is what's interesting is the FDA did approve that, but only for HDPE 
right, mm-hmm. uh, for the SIP containers. And if you look carefully, what FDA said is you can use this fluorination process, but there can be no oxygen. It's only in the presence of nitrogen, right? And it turns out when companies use it, if any oxygen gets in, what happens is the fluorine gas does coat the inside. But if there's oxygen there, then what happens is you get a reaction and what you're creating are PFAS. And in fact, the example that they found was PFOA was being created on the surface. And this was found actually in uh, Massachusetts where uh, pesticides that were being uh, sprayed for mosquito control, they were able to detect PFAS. And where it was coming from was the jugs of the pesticide had been yeah. treated like this. So yeah. there's a question of, well, what's being allowed? And FDA only said HDPE, but it appears if you look in the literature or in industry, they're proposing this for all sorts of containers. Now, it looks like it would be primarily being used on larger containers. So ones that would be used in restaurants, the big ones, but maybe those would be available at the, you know, Sam's Club or uh, Costco or some of the big uh, box stores, say buying oil or other things in bulk, because those are the things you use it for. So yeah, people are actually all starting to look into the whole plastics area, but there's been all this action taken in the states on PFAS, which is actually pretty wonderful. Yeah. The, the, the state of Maine is leading the country. They've actually yep. Yep. passed a law banning all non-essential uses of PFAS by 2030, yeah, it's and, a little too long to wait, but yeah, you know, I mean, the chemical time. industry always gets their they always get their way. Unfortunately, you can't just remove all these things right now because it turns out, man, there's all sorts of not only the personal protective equipment for firefighters, uh, firefighters mm-hmm. but they're actually now that people are looking at it, they're finding things in all sorts of uh aware that's uh, that's being used by doctors. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about your work on antibiotics in food. I mean, antibiotics were these miracle drugs that were going to cure a lot of diseases, but then we started using them on animals. I, I presume there are, uh, there are residual antibiotics from treating those animals who are sick or used to prevent them from getting sick or maybe just to make them grow faster that are still showing up in our food. Where Where are we on that right now? No, with the antibiotics, I think what the issue there is what's sort of really interesting is you're right at the start of the 1900s, infectious diseases was a serious problem. And you have to realize that antibiotics, the first real antibiotic that comes out in use is not until the 1930s. Right. Right. And so antibiotics first come out in the 1930s. But what's interesting is its first use in animal agriculture was sort of accidental. And some of the first antibiotics were derived from soil bacteria, right? And there was a scientist, Thomas Jukes, who was working for one of the drug companies. And after World War II, they were developing antibiotics. And Jukes was on this team that was sent to look for antibiotic to try to fight infections. And so while he was looking at those, he sort of comes up with, let's see, the first one came out of uh, Streptomyces orofaciens, which is a bacteria. And that's the first tetracycline antibiotic. And it was a general miracle drug to work against 
a whole bunch of diseases, viral pneumonia, whooping cough, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, eye infections, typhus. So what happened is it showed a success in humans. And, and then with this Thomas Jukes did is he started to test it on chicken and chickens were being fed with soybeans at the time. And what they were finding is the chickens weren't surviving very well because they were using soybean meal uh, in place of fish meal. And soybeans lack some kind of essential ingredient for survival. They called it an animal protein factor back then. And anemia was also a problem with people. So what they did is at first they were giving them these liver extracts, but that was actually very expensive. So they were looking for other things. And what they did is they tested birds. They started adding oromycin was added to the feed. And what they found was there was this growth promotion effect, right? Oh boy, here we and go. They were able to see that, wow, we could just give a little bit of it to the chickens and at very low doses. And they seem to put on weight more quickly mm -hmm. and survive more. And they were testing this sort of extract after they made the drug and they realized, oh, this could be very useful. So what they did is they started to use some of the waste from production that had this spiking in it, and they found by mixing it with feed at low levels, they didn't understand why, but the animals appeared to put on weight gain. Hmm. So that started, oh, well, this is actually a way we can replace this liver power. We have a much cheaper feed supplement. The animals put on more weight, they get size more quickly. And that's how the low dose of antibiotics, because these were subtherapeutic doses, and they didn't know at the time what was happening. There were some theories like, well, maybe what it's doing is it's killing bacteria in the stomach that are causing disease, which cause the animal not to grow as fast, but they didn't really know. And so that's when you have this low levels of antibiotics being given to animals because it has this growth promoting property and it's cheap. You take the waste from the antibiotic production, you mix up with feed, and it's like, great, we have something that something works. To, something to sell. Right. Well, but then at the time, after World War II, since they didn't understand a lot of things, it seemed to make sense. Rather than throwing this waste out, right, you were sort of, yeah. you were recycling yeah. it, putting it with mash. They found something, a cheaper way to feed the chickens, and... They continue to grow. So they started to do this on a um, more widespread basis. This is at the end of the 40s. And then by the mid-60s, at least over in Europe, scientists, you know, and folks that are evolutionary biologists, you know that antibiotics can be used to kill bacteria, but they also select for resistance. But these are still sub-therapeutic uses. And, exactly. And, and, and when you say they're selecting for resistance, I just want to be sure that the audience understands what you mean by that. And what you mean by that, I believe, is by a sub-therapeutic use, you're actually allowing the bacteria that are resistant to flourish. And, right. Uh, right. Right. Let me, yes. What I, what I mean by that is a therapeutic dose for an antibiotic. The idea is that you take it for five days or 10 days for its yeah. course, right. and it's for a given bacteria. And you want to try to kill all the bacteria. Mm -hmm. You don't want any of them to survive, right? Yeah. If you use these low doses that don't kill all the bacteria, then the ones that do survive are going to be the ones that tend to have resistance that can withstand that antibiotic. The issue is if you're having that lower levels of antibiotics, yes, it's going to kill some organisms, but the ones that can overturn it will have more of a genetic resistance. Mm -hmm. 
right? And so what that does is that over time, ratchets up the level of resistance. And so that right. means you have to use more and more and more yeah. antibiotic yeah. until you get to the point that it's not useful and then you have to use some other antibiotic. Mm-hmm. And we've made the situation even worse because what we didn't realize is not only can there be what's called cross resistance. And so antibiotics that are in a given class like the penicillins, for example, right? Yeah. Um, if you become resistant to one, because other penicillins tend to work through the same way, the same what's called mechanism of action, then if you're resistant to one specific penicillin drug, you'll you'll be resistant to other drugs in the same class. So often what they do is, for example, there's a drug that's used in animals. That drug is not used in humans, but it's in the same class as an antibiotic that is used in humans. Ah, okay. And so since the antibiotics work through the same mechanism of action, if you become resistant to that mechanism of action, right, then the other antibiotics that work that same way, you're going to be resistant to those as well. Right. So, so the the wow. deal is that the deal is now that people are getting these trace amounts of antibiotics when they're eating these animal products that have been. Uh, uh, yes. Not only that, they're getting them from the environment as well, right? Because now that testing is very accurate. You can detect these antibiotics in the groundwater, in wastewater, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, the antibiotics get out in the environment and then they, of course, then continue to select for more resistance. So as we've realized how important antibiotic resistance is and the need to conserve uh, particularly medically important antibiotics, there's, there's been this attempt to stop the use of antibiotics for non-therapeutic purposes. And the FDA finally did take action. First in 2009, they passed a guidance for industry, and that was on judicious use of antimicrobial products. And what they basically said is growth promotion is not a judicious use. And so growth promotion uses of antibiotics end in 2016 or 2017, Now, part of the problem with that is at the same time, the real issue uh, from an ecological perspective is the lower dose, right? The subtherapeutic use. And that subtherapeutic use where there are lower doses, that's not just growth promotion. It turns out a lot of disease prevention, and that's where you add the antibiotic, and that's for, quote, prevention of disease. You're listening to Green Street with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today is Dr. Michael Hansen, Senior Scientist with Consumer Reports. Okay, so, so let me just talk to my listeners for a minute and just let them know that these trace antibiotics that they may be getting in their food um, would come mostly from animal products, obviously, but there are also antibiotic residues in your water supply. And those are coming from people who are taking antibiotics and they are excreting those antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And so from what I gather there, there, we have two routes of exposure now, right? Are there more than just those two routes of exposure? Yeah, there's actually a third route and that's antibiotics that are used in plant production. Okay. This is, this is new to me. Go ahead. Yes. So for the longest time until about five, six years ago, Antibiotic use in plant production uh, in the U.S. was primarily what are called the stone crops, you know, apples, peaches, pears. To fight fire blight and a couple of other diseases, they'll spray 
and antibiotic streptomycin or oxytetracycline. So those crops, they were allowing antibiotics to be used on. Then citrus greening disease right. appears in 2005, I believe, in Florida. And that's a serious disease of citrus plants. And there's actually one specific insect, the Asian psyllid, that actually transmits it. And that disease shows up in Florida in 2005 and actually starts spreading. So that within five to 10 years, you know, you have 30 or 40% of the citrus production is going down in mm. Florida. So what they did is in 2015 or 2016, they declared an emergency and the EPA authorized the application of both streptomycin and oxytetracycline to be used on citrus in the United States. And they did a risk assessment that said, even if we treated 100% of all the citrus plants in the United States, there wouldn't be an increased risk to humans. Now, the problem with that idea is if you just do the math, the amount of antibiotics that they approved, the amount of, for example, streptomycin uh, that was approved to be used in citrus is literally over 24 times the amount of that antibiotic that's used in all of human medicine. Wow. So there was a, a potential massive increase. To be clear, it doesn't appear that there's been a gigantic increase in uh, antibiotic use in citrus because it looks like it doesn't really work that well. But that's not the point. The point is the EPA said that you could have this massive exposure and it would be perfectly safe. And with imported foods, we know that this is a problem in other countries, rice and other crops are being sprayed with antibiotics that we don't have much of a control on. And then it turns out what also selects for antibiotic resistance is some herbicides, particularly glyphosate. But in terms of human exposure, you're right. Most of the exposure is going to come from animal and dairy products. Right. Well, animal products, uh, you know, primarily. And so that's why there's been this increase. People have been looking for alternatives to antibiotics. The FDA at least took some baby steps. They did ban growth promotion uses there since 2009. They've had to every year report the total amount of antibiotics that have been used in agriculture. And just as of last year, they started breaking that data down and estimating the amount that is used for different animal species. And we were trying to get them to actually come up with something like the European Union does, where you can calculate a given dose of like how many antibiotics are used to produce a you know pound of meat, right? Because mm. then you could start to compare things. So yeah. there now the FDA's the action they're taking is very slow. But what we do have is there's action happening in the marketplace because there's all these labels that, for example, if people don't want exposure to antibiotics they could try organic. And we've done testing of various meat and poultry products over the years. Uh, we would look for bacteria levels. And then more recently, we also look for the levels of antibiotic resistance genes. And uh, a study we did with meat, with ground meat that was actually done about seven years ago, I believe, in consumer reports is we looked at bacteria levels on meat, this was uh, beef, that was labeled as organic, beef that was labeled as conventional, and then also as grass-fed. And what our test did when we looked at all these samples was, in terms of the level of bacteria, there wasn't much of a difference 
between conventional organic and grass fed. Now that's not surprising because they're often slaughtered the same plants and you know you can get contamination. What was interesting is when you look at the relative rate and we looked at not only pathogens but some indicator bacteria when we looked at the prevalence of what we call superbugs, and those are bacteria that were resistant to three or more classes of antibiotics, mm -hmm. that level was highest in a conventional, lower in organic, and it was the lowest on the 100% grass fed. So what that data shows you right there is that a label matters, either organic mm -hmm. or 100% grass fed. Actually, the bacteria there have lower levels of antibiotic resistance gene, right? right? So that means you'd be uh, less say, exposed to those. Then within poultry, there's these huge labels called no antibiotics or raised without antibiotics or yeah. no antibiotics ever. Mm -hmm. right. Now, part of the problem is with a lot of these labels is consumers look for them. But what Consumer Reports, what we've said is unless there's an independent third-party verification, those labels aren't worth much because... It's just a manufacturer claim. Mm -hmm. Whereas the organic label, that has independent certifiers and inspectors going out and verifying things. And then the other problem with the no antibiotics ever label is there was a, a recent study that came out that actually found antibiotics in 15% of... <laughs> so what that tells you is the no antibiotics ever label... Doesn't mean uh, much. It, it, well, it's 85% of the time was fine, 15% yeah. it wasn't. But yeah. for consumer reports, we say if a label doesn't have an independent third-party verifier, it shouldn't really be trusted. So sure. there are other labels out there that talk about responsible use of antibiotics that are good. Now, there's also this problem with this GAP label, Global Animal Partnership. Uh, for right. example, all the Whole Foods has it and some other places. Right, 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 right. Now, those are about animal welfare issues, but... The gap one through four, those all say no, no medically important antibiotics are being used, right? Well, the study that just came out, it turns out, even though the overall data was 15%, turns out for the ones that were labeled as gap, Global Animal Partnership, it was like 22% of those they could detect antibiotics. Mm. So, Michael, it sounds like we're engaged in a long battle of whack-a-mole. I mean, you've been doing this for almost 40 years. If you could make one change in the way government regulates some of these Animal. chemicals, what, what would that change be? If we lived in a perfect world, I think there's something like the REACH program in Europe would be uh -huh. very useful. It's not going to happen here. Explain what the REACH program is. Yeah, that what the REACH program in Europe is, is they've made a decision that they're going to relook at all the chemicals that have been approved. They're going to make sure that the data is up to date on them. And also for any new chemical to be approved, you have to do all this toxicity data and you have to, to show that it is actually needed. Mm -hmm. that it's that it's better than something out there and so the this reach program which would require uh extensive toxicity testing before things are allowed on the market the u.s exactly. of course hates that no mm -hmm. we hate that i'm just gonna say they have to prove it safety in other words that's shifting the burden of proof to the manufacturers and that's really where it should be i mean it, right now it's on the consumers who have no right. power. They have I to know, organize. But... They have to get together and get a petition together. And then that's correct. And, Crazy. If you, and if you look at the history 
of this country, you'll realize that things are a lot better than they were, but this is the same arguments as 150 years ago. The thing that's mm-hmm. ironic mm-hmm. is the person that actually founded the FDA, Dr. Wiley, he was an activist, right? Yeah. He was an activist. Mm. Industry wanted him out. And the reason they did is after the Civil War, when Lincoln is in, they set up the Hatch Act, the land grant system is created, the Department of Agriculture gets created, and one of the first things the government does is they set up a lab. And what does that lab do? It tests food for contaminants and all sorts of things. And in that lab, during the end of the 1800s, after the Civil War and before 1900, what was happening in the, in the U.S., was the railroads were all being built. And so that means food production was no longer local, right? Mm-hmm. You could ship at distances. And so that means you didn't necessarily know your farmer. So who knows what you were buying? And in fact, back then, there, there's a thing that the Department of Agriculture, the, the part that becomes FDA that they put out, it was called Bulletin 13. And they used to put out these bulletins of what they would find when they tested things. So for example, they would go out and test pepper right? They would buy pepper from the market. And then when they were tested, they would find out 2% of it was pepper. The rest was just who knows what (laughs) ground up. And that was true for all these spices. There was uh, candies, for example, that had so much lead in them because of the colors that there would be dozens of children dying. And then when a state tries to pass regulations outlawing the use of this lead in candy, what does the industry argue? Oh, this is government overreach. You can't show that this is dangerous. Mm. It's a lot of the same mm. arguments that yeah. we're having today. And so what you realize is the whole history of that. There's actually, after the uh, Civil War and before the founding of the FDA in 1900, there was a thing called the pure food movement. And it was basically a lot of women and others who were concerned about all the junk that was being put into food because they were using uh, Paris green, which was, you know, arsenicals, copper arsenate, lead arsenate. Those were all being used en masse. Sure. Right. And so you had all these people in the uh, U.S. fighting that, all these activists, everything comes to in like 1900, Wiley was actually doing Uh, experiments at the FDA at the time where since things were being shipped and we didn't have refrigeration, they would add formaldehyde to milk. They would add all sorts of things to preserve stuff, right? And these were all incredibly hazardous things. So what, what they did is they even called it the poison squad that Dr. Wiley in like 19, in the early 1900s, there uh, were these men that they paid to come in and eat every day at the FDA and they would give them various doses of, you know, borax or for, or for maldehyde, other things that were being added to foods that they said were perfectly safe, right? And those are some of the first studies which start to show that people were getting very sick from these things. And you can go back and there was, there were popular songs and skits about the poison squad. And this all accumulates, you know, then you have Upton Sinclair, right? Who's going around concerned at the slaughter plants for how bad workers were being treated. And they find out how horrible the beef conditions are. And so that's why in 1906, you know, after this sort of whole pure food movement and fights from all these other folks, that's when the Pure Food and Drug Act comes in. 
1906. And that was the first law that basically said you can't add a toxin to food. Now, the problem with the law when it came in in 1906 is that's a big step forward, right? But what it didn't say is who determines what the mm, poison is, yep, who's yep. got to show it. And so there was yeah. this whole other fight that leads up to the 1938 when the next drug law is passed. And what's interesting about that is Consumer Reports is involved in this because Consumer Reports was founded in 1936. The guy, Arthur Callett, that that actually was one of the founders in 1930, he writes a book called 100 Million Guinea Pigs. And what that book is about is all the uh, sort of fraud that is going on with drugs and also with food, like milk and other things. Because you could just dilute the milk, you could do all sorts of- When did he write this? In 1930? 1930. It's called 100 Million Guinea Pigs. And that was because that was a population of the U.S. at the time. Mm -hmm. And there were people that were, you know, there were drugs that were being sold, all these uh, elixirs, right, which were basically alcohol and other things. And they would sell them that they would cure all these other things. And you could they would even go into these abstinence communities and, you know, very fundamental communities where you can't drink alcohol. But, oh, this is medicine. And so there was a whole, and what I find funny is even the term snake oil. That had a bad connotation. You know where that term actually comes from? No. No. <laughs> no. It turns out that the Chinese workers that they imported, right, into mm-hmm. California to help build, build, build railroads, railroads, railroads yep. that's right. That's yeah, true. well, guess what? Those workers who worked on those railroads, what they brought with them was actually there's a, a type of water snake in China. And the fat from that animal, which they would, you know, rub on themselves, actually did have antihistamine and anti, yeah, it, it actually had it actually properties. It actually it, sort of worked. Oh and what gosh. other people were doing when they saw this is there were folks in the U.S. rattlesnakes or all sorts of other things that were doing their own snake oil. And we don't know until much later that there was something about the particular species of snakes in China that had this fat that actually works, whereas the ones here didn't. And so you had all these people that were recreating something that was just nonsense. And so the term snake oil turns into this jive, but its origin wasn't something that was actually real. You've been listening to Green Street with Patty and Doug Wood. Our guest today has been Dr. Michael Hansen, senior scientist with Consumer Reports. If you missed any part of today's show, you can always listen again at GreenStreetRadio.com, where you can hear all of our past shows and also sign up for our Green Street program alerts. We usually send out a notice the day before the show so you know what's coming up. You can also send us your comments and ideas for the show. It's all at GreenStreetRadio.com. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Michael Hansen, and our assistant producer, Ellen Weiniger. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.